Question 1 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, Part 1, The Prologue and Question 1, Articles 1 through 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Tertia Pars, Third Part, Prologue For as much as our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, verse 21, as the angel announced, showed unto us in his own person the way of truth, whereby we may attain to the bliss of eternal life by rising again. It is necessary, in order to complete the work of theology, that after considering the last end of human life, and the virtues and vices, there should follow the consideration of the Saviour of all, and of the benefits bestowed by him on the human race. Concerning this, we must consider 1. The Saviour Himself 2. The sacraments by which we attain to our salvation 3. The end of immortal life to which we attain by the resurrection Concerning the first, a double consideration occurs. The first, about the mystery of the Incarnation itself whereby God was made man for our salvation. The second, about such things as were done and suffered by our Saviour, that is, God incarnate. Treatise on the Incarnation, Questions 1 through 59 Question 1 Of the Fitness of the Incarnation, in six articles. Concerning the first, three things occur to be considered. First, the fitness of the Incarnation. Secondly, the mode of union of the word incarnate. Thirdly, what follows this union. Under the first head there are six points of inquiry. First, whether it was fitting for God to become incarnate, Second, whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race. Third, whether if there had been no sin, God would have become incarnate. Fourth, whether he became incarnate to take away original sin rather than actual. Fifth, whether it was fitting for God to become incarnate from the beginning of the world. Sixth, whether his incarnation ought to have been deferred to the end of the world. First article, whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Objection one, it would seem that it was not fitting for God to become incarnate, since God from all eternity is the very essence of goodness it was best for him to be as he had been from all eternity. 
but from all eternity, he had been without flesh. Therefore, it was most fitting for him not to be united to flesh. Therefore, it was not fitting for God to become incarnate. Objection to further. It is not fitting to unite things that are infinitely apart, even as it would not be a fitting union if one were to paint a figure in which the neck of a horse was joined to the head of a man, according to Horace in the first line of his The Art of Poetry. But God and flesh are infinitely apart, since God is most simple and flesh is most composite, especially human flesh. Therefore it was not fitting that God should be united to human flesh. Objection 3. Further, a body is as distant from the highest spirit as evil is from the highest good. But it was wholly unfitting that God, who is the highest good, should assume evil. Therefore, it was not fitting that the highest uncreated spirit should assume a body. Objection 4. Further, it is not becoming that he who surpassed the greatest things should be contained in the least, and he upon whom rests the care of great things should leave them for lesser things. But God, who takes care of the whole world, the whole universe of things cannot contain. Therefore it would seem unfitting that he should be hid under the frail body of a babe in swathing bands, in comparison with whom the whole universe is accounted as little, and that this prince should quit his throne for so long, and transfer the government of the whole world to so frail a body. As Volusianus writes to Augustine in his letter 135. On the contrary, it would seem most fitting that by visible things the invisible things of God should be made known. For to this end was the whole world made, as is clear from the word of the Apostle in Romans 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. But as Damascene says in On the True Faith 3.1, by the mystery of the Incarnation are made known at once the goodness, the wisdom, the justice, and the power or might of God. His goodness, for he did not despise the weakness of his own handiwork. His justice, since on man's defeat he caused the tyrant to be overcome by none other than man, and yet he did not snatch men forcibly from death. His wisdom, for he found a suitable discharge for a most heavy debt. His power or infinite might, for there is nothing greater than for God to become incarnate. I answer that, to each thing, that is befitting which belongs to it by reason of its very nature. Thus, to reason befits man, since this belongs to him because he is of a rational nature. 
But the very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysius, in On the Divine Names 1. Hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness befits God. But it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysius, in On the Divine Names 4. Hence it belongs to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature, and this is brought about chiefly by his sojoining created nature to himself that one person is made up of these three, the word, a soul, and flesh, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 13. Hence it is manifest that it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Reply to Objection 1 The mystery of the Incarnation was not completed through God being changed in any way from the state in which he had been from eternity, but through his having united himself to the creature in a new way, or rather through having united it to himself. But it is fitting that a creature which by nature is mutable should not always be in one way, and therefore, as the creature began to be, although it had not been before, so likewise, not having been previously united to God in person, it was afterwards united to him. Reply to Objection 2 To be united to God in unity of person was not fitting to human flesh, according to its own natural endowments, since it was above its dignity. Nevertheless, it was fitting that God, by reason of his infinite goodness, should unite it to himself for man's salvation. Reply to Objection 3. Every mode of being, wherein any creature whatsoever differs from the Creator, has been established by God's wisdom, and is ordained to God's goodness. For God, who is uncreated, immutable, and incorporeal, produced mutable and corporeal creatures for his own goodness. And so also, the evil of punishment was established by God's justice for God's glory. But evil of fault is committed by withdrawing from the art of the divine wisdom and from the order of the divine goodness. And therefore, it could be fitting to God to assume a nature created, mutable, corporeal, and subject to penalty, but it did not become him to assume the evil of fault. Reply to Objection 4 As Augustine replies to his letter to Volusianus 137, The Christian doctrine nowhere holds that God was so joined to human flesh, as either to desert or lose, or to transfer and, as it were, contract within this frail body, the care of governing the universe. This is the thought of men unable to see anything but corporeal things. God is great, not in mass, but in might. Hence the greatness of his might feels no straits in narrow surroundings. Nor if the passing word of a man is heard at once by many, and wholly by each, 
is it incredible that the abiding word of God should be everywhere at once? Hence nothing unfitting arises from God becoming incarnate. Second article. Whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate. Objection 1. It would seem that it was not necessary for the reparation of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate. For since the word of God is perfect God, as has been said in the Pars Prima, question 4, articles 1 and 2, no power was added to him by the assumption of flesh. Therefore, if the incarnate word of God restored human nature, he could have also restored it without assuming flesh. Objection to further. For the restoration of human nature, which had fallen through sin, nothing more is required than that man should satisfy for sin. Now man can satisfy, as it would seem, for sin. For God cannot require from man more than man can do, and since he is more inclined to be merciful than to punish, as he lays the act of sin to man's charge, so he ought to credit him with the contrary act. Therefore, it was not necessary for the restoration of human nature that the word of God should become incarnate. Objection 3. Further, to revere God pertains especially to man's salvation. Hence it is written in Malachi 1.6, If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? But men revere God the more by considering him as elevated above all and far beyond man's senses. Hence, Psalm 112, verse 4, says, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. And further on, Who is as the Lord our God? Which pertains to reverence. Therefore, it would seem unfitting to man's salvation that God should be made like unto us by assuming flesh. On the contrary, what frees the human race from perdition is necessary for the salvation of man. But the mystery of the Incarnation is such. According to John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Therefore, it was necessary for man's salvation that God should become incarnate. I answer that. A thing is said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life. Secondly, when the end is attained better and more conveniently, as a horse is necessary for a journey. In the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. 
for god with his omnipotent power could have restored human nature in many other ways but in the second way it was necessary that god should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature hence augustine says in on the trinity 12:10 we shall also show that other ways were not wanting to god to whose power all things are equally subject but that there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery now this may be viewed with respect to our furtherance in good first with regard to faith which is made more certain by believing god himself who speaks hence augustine says in on the city of god eleven two in order that man might journey more trustfully toward the truth the truth itself the son of god having assumed human nature established and founded faith secondly with regard to hope which is thereby greatly strengthened hence augustine says in on the trinity 13 nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply god loved us and what could afford us a stronger proof of this than that the son of god should become a partner with us of human nature thirdly with regard to charity which is greatly enkindled by this hence augustine says in on catechizing beginners for what greater cause is there of the lord's coming than to show god's love for us and afterwards he adds if we have been slow to love at least let us hasten to love in return fourthly with regard to well-doing in which he set us an example hence augustine says in a sermon man who might be seen was not to be followed but god was to be followed who could not be seen and therefore god was made man that he who might be seen by man and whom man might follow might be shown to man fifthly with regard to the full participation of the divinity which is the true bliss of man and end of human life and this is bestowed upon us by christ's humanity for augustine says again in a sermon god was made man that man might be made god so also was this useful for our withdrawal from evil first because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself nor to honor him who is the author of sin hence augustine says in on the trinity thirteen seventeen since human nature is so united to god as to become one person let not these proud spirits dare to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies secondly because we are thereby taught how great is man's dignity lest we should sully it with sin hence augustine says in on true religion 16 god has proved to us how high a place human nature holds amongst creatures 
inasmuch as he appeared to men as true man. And Pope Leo says in a sermon on the Nativity, his homily 21, Learn, O Christian, thy worth, and being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. Thirdly, because in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ, though no merits of ours went before, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 13.17. Fourthly, because man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block to our clinging to God, can be convinced and cured by humility so great, as Augustine says in the same place. Fifthly, in order to free man from the thraldom of sin, which, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 13.13, ought to be done in such a way that the devil should be overcome by the justice of the man Jesus Christ. And this was done by Christ satisfying for us. Now a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. Hence it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. Hence Pope Leo says in the same sermon, Weakness is assumed by strength, lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity in order that one and the same mediator of God and men might die in one and rise in the other. For this was our fitting remedy. Unless he was God, he would not have brought a remedy, and unless he was man, he would not have set an example. And there are very many other advantages which accrued above man's apprehension. Reply to Objection 1. This reason has to do with the first kind of necessity, without which we cannot attain to the end. Reply to Objection 2. Satisfaction may be said to be sufficient in two ways. First, perfectly, inasmuch as it is condign, being adequate to make good the fault committed and in this way the satisfaction of a mere man cannot be sufficient for sin, both because the whole of human nature has been corrupted by sin, whereas the goodness of any person or persons could not be made up adequately for the harm done to the whole of the nature. And also because a sin committed against God has a kind of infinity from the infinity of the divine majesty, because the greater the person we offend, the more grievous the offense. Hence, for condign satisfaction, it was necessary that the act of the one satisfying should have an infinite efficiency as being of God and man. Secondly, man's satisfaction may be termed sufficient imperfectly, that is, in the acceptation of him who is content with it, even though it is not condign and in this way the satisfaction of a mere man is insufficient. And forasmuch as every imperfect, 
presupposes some perfect thing by which it is sustained hence it is that satisfaction of every mere man has its efficiency from the satisfaction of christ reply to objection three by taking flesh god did not lessen his majesty and in consequence did not lessen the reason for reverencing him which is increased by the increase of knowledge of him but on the contrary inasmuch as he wished to draw nigh to us by taking flesh he greatly drew us to know him third article whether if man had not sinned god would have become incarnate objection one it would seem that if man had not sinned god would still have become incarnate for the cause remaining the effect also remains but as augustine says in on the trinity thirteen seventeen many other things are to be considered in the incarnation of christ besides absolution from sin and these were discussed above in article two therefore if man had not sinned god would have become incarnate objection to further it belongs to the omnipotence of the divine power to perfect his works and to manifest himself by some infinite effect but no mere creature can be called an infinite effect since it is finite of its very essence now seemingly in the work of the incarnation alone is an infinite effect of the divine power manifested in a special manner by which power things infinitely distant are united inasmuch as it has been brought about that man is god and in this work especially the universe would seem to be perfected inasmuch as the last creature notably man is united to the first principle notably god therefore even if man had not sinned god would have become incarnate objection three further human nature has not been made more capable of grace by sin but after sin it is capable of the grace of union which is the greatest grace therefore if man had not sinned human nature would have been capable of this grace nor would god have withheld from human nature any good it was capable of therefore if man had not sinned god would have become incarnate objection for further god's predestination is eternal but it is said of christ in romans one four who was predestined the son of god in power therefore even before sin it was necessary that the son of god should become incarnate in order to fulfill god's predestination objection five further the mystery of the incarnation was revealed to the first man as is plain from genesis two verse twenty three this now is bone of my bones etc which the apostle says is 
a great sacrament in Christ and in the Church, as is plain from Ephesians 5.32. But man could not be foreconscious of his fall for the same reason that the angels could not, as Augustine proves in On the Literal Meaning of Genesis 11.18. Therefore, even if man had not sinned, God would have become incarnate. On the contrary, Augustine says in his homily 174, expounding what is set down in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Therefore, if man had not sinned, the Son of Man would not have come. And on 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. A gloss says, There was no cause of Christ's coming into the world except to save sinners, take away diseases, take away wounds, and there is no need of medicine. I answer that there are different opinions about this question. For some say that even if man had not sinned, the Son of Man would have become incarnate. Others assert the contrary, and seemingly our assent ought rather to be given to this opinion. For such things as spring from God's will, and beyond the creature's do, can be made known to us only through being revealed in the sacred scripture, in which the divine will is made known to us. Hence, since everywhere in the sacred scripture the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason of the Incarnation, it is more in accordance with this to say that the work of the Incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin, so that, had sin not existed, the Incarnation would not have been. And yet the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. Reply to Objection 1. All the other causes which are assigned in the preceding article have to do with the remedy for sin. For if man had not sinned, he would have been endowed with the light of divine wisdom and would have been perfected by God with the righteousness of justice in order to know and carry out everything needful. But because man, on deserting God, had stooped to corporeal things, it was necessary that God should take flesh and by corporeal things should afford him the remedy of salvation. Hence, on John 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh, St. Augustine says, Flesh had blinded thee, flesh heals thee, for Christ came and overthrew the vices of the flesh. Reply to Objection 2. The infinity of divine power is shown in the mode of production of things from nothing. Again, it suffices for the perfection of the universe that the creature be ordained in a natural manner to God as to an end. But that a creature should be united to God in person 
exceeds the limits of the perfection of nature. Reply to Objection 3. A double capability may be remarked in human nature. One, in respect of the order of natural power, and this is always fulfilled by God, who apportions to each according to its natural capability. The other, in respect to the order of the divine power, which all creatures implicitly obey. And the capability we speak of pertains to this. But God does not fulfill all such capabilities. Otherwise God could do only what he has done in creatures, and this is false, as stated above in the Pars Prima, question 105, article 6. But there is no reason why human nature should not have been raised to something greater after sin. For God allows evils to happen in order to bring a greater good therefrom. Hence it is written in Romans 5 verse 20, Where sin abounded, grace did more abound. Hence too, in the blessing of the paschal candle we say, O happy fault, that merited such and so great a Redeemer. Reply to Objection 4 Predestination presupposes the foreknowledge of future things, and hence, as God predestines the salvation of anyone to be brought about by the prayers of others, so also he predestined the work of the Incarnation to be the remedy of human sin. Reply to Objection 5 Nothing prevents an effect from being revealed to one to whom the cause is not revealed. Hence the mystery of the Incarnation could be revealed to the first man without his being foreconscious of his fall. For not everyone who knows the effect knows the cause. End of Question 1, Part 1 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.